You know when you listen to a news report or you watch a news report on TV, you see this video clip of some newsworthy event and you know there's a 30 second clip and you see what happens, you, you see and you hear what the uh, event is and it just takes 30 seconds. But for the next 30 minutes, commentators come on the radio or the TV and try to tell you what to believe about what you saw yourself. We call these people spin commentators. They, they put their spin on things. And if you listen to them for a half hour, uh, at the end of that half hour you won't know what you saw. And you won't know what to believe about it. You'll be thoroughly confused. Well, we have had spin commentators commenting on all the events of our life since we were born. Beginning with our parents, our peers, our teachers, other social commentators. And they have been telling us how to understand what we experience. And so when we come to practice like this and we sit down to pay attention to our experience and we, we, know, we see what happens. You know, we feel the body and the aches and pains in the body and we, we watch the mind think and plan and whinge and whine and complain and, and we, we, we see what's going on. And if we just take our own conditioned way of thinking about what we experience, we'll think we're in trouble. <laughs> Our life's a mess. Our mind is just absolutely crazy. And can you imagine? The Buddha sits down uh, as a bodhisattva and he looks at this mind like we've been looking at our mind today. He looks at this mind and he figures out what is going on and how to stop suffering. How are you doing? You figured out how to understand your own mind? The Buddha's teaching is his own spin. But we should understand that the Buddha's spin of how to understand our experience is coming from the place, and I should say the Buddha's bottom line, is does this experience, is this an experience of suffering? Or does it lead to suffering? Or, on the other hand, does it lead to the end of suffering? And that's the Buddha's bottom line. He's not getting you, he's not trying to talk you into voting for anything. Or not trying to get you to buy anything except to stop suffering. And so when we hear the Buddha's teachings, we have to understand that this is where the Buddha's coming from. Pointing to our experiences and indicating whether they're suffering or not suffering, or whether they lead to suffering or the end of suffering. So when I talk about the Buddha's right view, right in this sense means skillful. Is it skillful in leading to the end of suffering? Or is it unskillful in leading to more suffering? 
after the Buddha's awakening, and he began to uh, share his realization. The first um, talk that he gave was a talk on uh, the Four Noble Truths to the five ascetics that he had been practicing with. And the fourth noble truth, well, the first noble truth is that there's, there's suffering. The second is that this suffering is caused by craving. The third noble truth is that there is an end to craving and therefore an end to suffering. And the fourth noble truth is that there is a path that each one of us can develop to realize the end of suffering. And that path, the Noble Eightfold Path, is essentially three trainings. And I want to mention them because we're undertaking these trainings here. The first is a training in uh, right speech, right conduct, which we're practicing by taking the precepts. And in order to keep the precepts, we have to purify our intention before speaking, and before acting, to uh, to not harm, being careful not to harm ourselves or others. And if we're able to do that, or to the extent that we do that collectively, then we can live in harmony with one another. And we don't have to look far in our life to see how rare the happiness of harmony is. And how... Uh, not only rare it is, but how enjoyable it is when you do have and are able to live in harmony with one another. But even if we're able to live in harmony and we're able to uh, keep an eye on our speech and actions and not unintentionally or intentionally cause harm, sometimes our mind can be quite unruly and it might be wanting to say things that we're not saying or do things that we're not doing. And the mind can be quite obsessed. And you might have know you might have noticed today some of your own obsessing. Anxiety, worry, depression, fear, self-judgment, uh, boredom, sleepiness, restlessness. The mind it just it has a whole catalogue of uh, obsessing capacity. And to get a handle on this obsessing mind, the Buddha taught mindfulness. Mindfulness is, as I uh, acknowledged earlier this morning, is you know remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. And while some of what we recognize is unpleasant, unpleasant sensations, unpleasant mental states, like these qualities of obsessing, still, if we're persistent in recognizing the obsessing mind, it gradually quiets down. And this is the, the benefit of the continuity of mindfulness is that it purifies the mind temporarily of obsessive uh, torments in the mind. And uh, when the mind is calmed down or free, momentarily free of obsessing, then we have a, a condition that's called seclusion of mind. The mind is free of obsessing. It's called samadhi, or concentration, or collectedness. And for those brief moments that you might have experienced today, non-obsessing mind, 
It's a relief. It's a real relief. But we're not always able to um, practice or be aware with that degree of continuity. And so the Buddha offered a third training in the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the practice of insight or Vipassana. And this is, we're also practicing here. Because Vipassana aims not to just purify our intention before speaking or acting, and not to just purify our mind temporarily of the obsessing uh, habits of mind, but to purify our understanding. It's because we understand things wrongly. We see what's going on, we don't understand them correctly, and we end up with more suffering. Vipassana practice is to see things clearly. To see, but to understand things clearly. Seeing clearly is mindfulness. Understanding clearly is Vipassana. So what we're doing here with our daily practice is we're practicing sila to to live in harmony and and, uh, begin to notice our intentions before speaking and acting. We're practicing mindfulness in order to see the moment-to-moment experiences. And we're practicing Vipassana to understand our experiences in a way that leads to the end of suffering. So when the Buddha talked about Vipassana or right or skillful understanding, he said that, you know, skillful understanding or hearing the right view of things, the right way of understanding, is the first step in practice. Because, you know, if we're going to do anything for the first time, whether it's rebuild a car engine or bake a cake or write a book or raise a child, we need information. We need some information. How do you do this? How, what, what do we want to be attentive to? What do we want to watch out for? And so too with meditation or the development of the mind, as Alexis was talking about, bhavana, the cultivation of the mind. Uh, while there are many techniques, and anyone can offer you a technique for cultivating something about the mind, if we don't really understand the purpose of it, and why we're cultivating the mind, and how to cultivate the mind, then whether the mind actually gets cultivated is just dumb luck. So what I want to speak about tonight is the Buddha's understanding of skillful views, the right way of understanding our experience, the right way of understanding uh, or the skillful way of understanding our experience, the skillful way of understanding what meditation is about in the first place. Sariputta was second only to the Buddha in the development of wisdom at the time of the Buddha. And one time he was talking with some uh, monks and they were saying, since right view is so important, how are we to establish right view in our own heart, in our own mind? And Sariputta said, to establish right view, there are two elements to right view. The first is that you need to hear it from someone else. 
Now what that means is we can't figure out right view by ourselves. We actually have to hear it from someone else. Now we're all educated. We live in the West. We've got more information and more knowledge than we know what to do with. And we're smart. We know how to solve the problems of our life. We know how to make money. We know how to do the things that we need to do. But here we have Sariputta saying, you can't figure this out. So sometimes it's a, we can kind of hear it as a challenge. We can hear it as an admonition. We can hear it as something to uh, rebel against even. But think of this. We accept other people's understandings of things all the time. You know, sitting here, the sun uh, rises over there, I think. And over the course of the day, it goes overhead and it sits over there. And a few hours later, it rises over there in the east, goes overhead, and later in the day, sits over here in the west. From our direct observation, we would say the sun circles the earth. That's what our direct observation says, right? If we were to rely only on our observation, we'd say the sun is going around the earth. But there are those, there have been those in human history who were able to observe that and other movements of the planets and the stars and the heavens. And they said, no, the sun doesn't actually circle the earth. Actually, the earth spins on an axis and it's the earth that circles the sun, but it takes a year. Now, we have been told that since we were little little tykes and we've learned it. It's been drilled into us. We've even been tested on it and we've all passed the test. Now, everyone in this room believes that in fact, right, the earth spins on its axis creating the illusion or creating the appearance of day and night and the sun does not revolve around the earth. Right? Don't you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But we haven't ever observed that and confirmed it for ourselves. We can think it through and we can believe what the books say and we can believe what Galileo or whoever it was said, but we haven't really confirmed it from our own experience. Okay, so the Buddha is saying, I want to tell you how it's going to be. You know, it's like this. And when we first hear the teachings from the Buddha on right view of experience, it's kind of counterintuitive. It can be counterintuitive. It can be just downright, well, absurd sounding. It's like, that's not my experience at all. And so... We, want to, we have to understand how are we supposed to deal with this. We hear the teachings of the Buddha and it doesn't square, it doesn't resonate with our experience. So rather than try to force the Buddha's view on yourself, we just have to hear it. And that's what Sariputta said. You just have to hear it from somebody else. And then the second element of establishing right view in your own heart and mind is to pay wise attention to your experience. And that's what we're doing here. So tonight I want to share some right views of the Buddhist teachings. And if you continue to practice over the course of the retreat with wise attention, then we'll begin to see for ourselves, oh, this may be so. Because 
many of you know, that this practice is not primarily about belief. It's not whether you believe the Buddhist teachings or not. You can believe the Buddhist teachings, but that doesn't relieve you of suffering. You actually have to practice awareness. Come to your own understanding, and that's what frees you from suffering. So this practice in the Buddhist teachings is not primarily a matter of belief. Nevertheless, we still have to hear the teachings so that we can practice in a way to confirm them for ourselves. So I want to speak about a skillful view of the Dharma. Now the Dharma is both the teachings of the Buddha and it's also the way things are, the way things have come to be. It's called the Dharma or the truth. And the way things have come to be is not accidental. It's not a mistake. It's due to causes and conditions like the law of nature. The laws of nature show us how things come to be. You know, we, we can understand the natural laws, the, the biological laws of nature that say, look, if you plant an apple seed in the ground, you get an apple tree. Of course, you have to graft on the apples you want, but nevertheless, you still get an apple tree. Or if you plant a, an orange seed, you get an orange tree. You don't get a, you don't get a banana tree out of an orange seed. <coughs> the, the, this is just the laws of nature. And Western science has studied the laws of nature enough to know that you know, there are biological laws that govern the, the unfolding of different forms of life. We too, as human beings, biological beings, much of what we experience as a human being is not under our control. You know, we're born, we live out this life, things happen to the body and mind, it gets sick, it gets old, it eventually passes away against our best wishes, and we are heir to the laws of nature. It's pretty clear, isn't it? We're also heirs to the laws, the physical laws of nature. For example, the law of gravity. It's not a, it's not a matter of belief. You can believe or not believe in gravity, but you're still going to be affected by it. You can deny it and try to live without the law of gravity, but the consequences are painful. So we can understand that if we try to live in avoidance or in denial of the laws of nature, we're going to suffer. Okay, so the physical laws, the biological laws, the chemical laws of nature are well understood by Western science and all of us understand that. But there are laws also governing the unfolding of the mind. And this is what the Buddha discovered. The laws of nature that govern the unfolding of the mind. They don't command how the mind will unfold, but they kind of guide how the mind will unfold. Alexis mentioned earlier this morning that the development of the mind or the cultivation of the mind is a gradual uh, cultivation of skillful, wholesome states of mind. Now, all of us have already a very, a very well-developed, actually, uh, baseline mentality of wholesome states of mind. We, we, we all have some level of generosity. 
We all have some level of loving kindness. We all have some level of um, living ethically. We all have some level of uh, uh, equanimity or non-reactivity or biting our tongue instead of sticking our foot in our mouth. And so these wholesome qualities of mind, they're a kind of a baseline mentality uh, in, in each one of us. Now they're different for, for different ones of us. And we know that if we practice, if we cultivate generosity, we can raise the baseline mentality of our, of our heart, of our mind. Or as we practice mindfulness and develop insight and wisdom, loving kindness, patience, uh, our ability to, or willingness to tell the truth, all of these things become more, uh, not, not just available, but they become more spontaneous, more accessible to us. But we also know that we all also have some pretty unskillful habits of mind. And all you have to do is look at where you were struggling today with the mind that gets caught in anxiety, or self-judgment, or impatience, or dullness and sleepiness, and you can see that, mm, yeah, got some of those too. Not that we are stuck there, but they can be a default setting of the mind, where, you know, when push comes to shove, we just resort to aversion rather than loving kindness, or we resort to, you know, fear instead of confidence, or we resort to blaming instead of forgiveness. And these unskillful, unwholesome tendencies of mind also have some footing in the mind. And so what we're doing here is paying attention in a way that reveals the laws of nature governing the unfolding of our mind. We say that things happen due to causes and conditions. Now, we may not understand all the causes and conditions that are at play here in every moment, but we can be sure that what we experience today is not accidental. Not accidental. One of the causes, or one of the conditions for our being here and practicing today is the fact that the Buddha lived 2,500 years ago. Now, most of us didn't think of that today, or we don't really remember that the Buddha lived 2,500 years ago. But if the Buddha didn't live here, 20, didn't live 2,500 years ago and teach what he taught, why would we be here? We might be here to go swimming in the lake, but we wouldn't be here doing what we're doing. So, in likewise, or in a similar way, we could look at the innumerable causes and conditions in our individual lives and in our collective being here that would make it possible for us to practice. Why is it that some people can hear the teachings of the Buddha and immediately resonate with them? I know when I did my first retreat, I, I didn't know I was going on a retreat. I, didn't, I wasn't spiritual. I wasn't looking for meditation. I certainly wasn't a Buddhist. I didn't know anybody who meditated. I just accidentally, it seemed, ended up at a two-week retreat. I was really deluded. You know, and for myself, I sat way up back, leaned against the piano, and two weeks, this was my introduction to meditation, two weeks, silent retreat like this, it was utter, sheer torture. But 
because I was in the midst of other people who were practicing, I was hearing the Dharma, I was tr- making my best effort, and just doing, well, following the format. Then, at the end of two weeks, I was more, I had more understanding, I had more mindfulness, I had more um, development of mind, due to causes and conditions that were, well, just not accidental. So too, if we put ourselves in this situation, you know, where we're among others who are cultivating their minds, following a schedule or self-scheduled periods of time, it'll happen. If we're not here, not doing this, or not practicing, then it won't happen. It's not because you're good at it, or you're skillful at it, or not skillful at it. It's due to causes and conditions that the, that the heart, that the mind develops. So what's important in all of this is to understand that what we're working with today, what were what qualities of heart, what qualities of mind, what what's going on in your heart and mind is not accidental. It's due to causes and conditions and to the extent that we can understand them skillfully and work with them, be mindful of them, then we can't help but develop the mind, develop the heart, free the mind from suffering. Because any Dharma practice cultivates wholesome states of mind. Whether you're doing mindfulness practice or practicing generosity or doing loving kindness practice or serving as you do your yogi, as you do your service jobs here, whatever you do cultivates wholesome states of mind. And when the mind is imbued with wholesomeness, unwholesomeness is not present. So gradually we learn to replace the unwholesome, unskillful states of mind, worry, anxiety, fear, depression, blaming, whinging, whining, with wholesome states of mind, generosity, understanding, awareness, compassion, truthfulness, and so on. This is the way the mind develops. It's, there's not that, it's not that some people can do it and some people can't, any mind that is trained will be developed. So, that's a little bit of understanding about the Dharma. I want to talk a little bit about skillful views of meditation practice because one of the great benefits of living in the West in this 21st century is that we have access to dozens, probably hundreds, maybe even more, uh, spiritual traditions. There's just so many spiritual traditions on the face of the earth uh, that, you know, you walk into a store or you go online looking for something, uh, some way of developing the mind, and you, you have no idea where to begin. There's just endless possibilities. So we want to have some understanding. I want to offer, try to offer you some understanding of the Buddha's practices or the the practice of mindfulness, the practice of insight, so that we can practice with confidence what we're doing here. So one understanding of the mind or meditation to be heard is that in every moment, in every moment, something is being known. This is the nature of the mind. It knows. 
And in every moment, something is being known. There isn't a moment go by that the mind isn't knowing something. Now, we don't make it happen. We often don't choose what it is that's being known. The practice we're doing here with cultivating awareness or developing awareness is not to create or not to determine what is being known, but to recognize that something's being known, to recognize the fact of knowing in every moment. So we say that in mindfulness practice, we're not trying to make something happen. It's already happening. What we're trying to do is recognize what's happening. So we sit down and we start paying attention and we feel sensations in the body. We don't make those sensations happen or thoughts occur in the mind. We don't make those, those thoughts occur either. But we can recognize any or all of them. Sensations in the body, thoughts in the mind, feelings in the heart. They just happen, don't they? And you may have experienced a lot today that you would rather not have. Well, that's part of practice too. Things are always being known. In every moment something is being known. Mindfulness is to recognize that. Remember to recognize the present moment. Something is being known. It is this something that we call the object. The object of awareness is the sensation in the body, the thought in the mind, the feeling in the heart. And as you can see from your experience today, the objects of our meditation are changing all the time. Even if you try to pay attention to, say, the breath. If you choose that as your meditation object, and you try to pay attention to the breath, you know, you breathe in, you breathe out, you breathe in, you space out. <laughs> Hard to do, isn't it? But even when we space out, you know, and I'm, I'm just going to talk about what spacing out is really like, you know, we're trying to do, we're trying to be attentive. And at some point today, you spaced out. You know, the mind got lost in a train of thought, and while that was happening, you didn't know you were thinking, right? You were just lost. You were lost in this train of thought. Uh, you didn't know if you were sitting or standing. You didn't know your gender. You didn't know your age. You didn't know your name. You didn't know where you were. You didn't even know you were a human being while that was going on, right? You didn't know anything. You were absent. And yet the mind, when, when, the, when that train of thought came to an end and mindfulness reappeared, sometimes you can just take a quick look back and you can see, you can recognize everything you were thinking about. At the time you were thinking about it, you didn't know it. Right? The mind was knowing, but awareness was not present. Now, we're trying to cultivate awareness, right? And even with, even with our best intention and our best effort, and we're really trying to pay attention, we still can't do it. It's not, it's not only me, right? <laughs> I mean, I had that experience today. Did you? Yeah. So we can understand that, oh, even though we're trying to be aware, we can't command the mind to do it. Right? But 
many of you have practiced over for many years, you know that we can cultivate the mind to do it. We can't tell the mind to do it, but if we practice, the mind will begin to do it more often. So what we're doing here is we're not telling the mind what to do, but we're cultivating this ability to recognize what the mind is knowing. So we're not trying to um, make something happen. We're not trying to tell the mind what to pay attention to. We're just trying to recognize what the mind is knowing, moment after moment. The field for our meditative awareness is our own body and mind. It's not a thought. It's not other people's bodies, not other people's minds, although we can notice other people. We can notice seeing is happening. We can notice uh, thoughts are happening. But primarily it's, it's paying attention to our own inner life, our own inner experience of, or as someone was mentioning earlier today, feeling into the present moment, feeling into what's going on in the body, feeling into the quality of mind, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's anxious, fretful, fearful, joyful, generous, kind. Feeling into it so that we can know our own experience, so we can recognize our own experience. The Buddha said, and it's, I think it's called the short discourse. There was a really short discourse that the Buddha gave. And he said, there are only six things that you ever experience. There's only six things that you ever experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or some thought process. That's it. Nothing else. And even with only six things to recognize, it's very difficult. Right? But if we could develop awareness, or to the extent that we do develop awareness, we'll never see anything other than seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or some thought process. There are many things to see, there are many things to hear, there are many different sensations to feel, but there's only one knowing element. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So while all beings, all of us, are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, we're not all practicing the recognition of what's happening or the recognition of what's being known. And this is the, the range of awareness practice. So as I mentioned, objects are anything that can be known. We begin with sensations, you know, paying attention to the sensations of the body sitting or the sensations of the movement of the body as we breathe in and out, or when moving, we pay attention to the sensations of the legs walking, or uh, the, the body moving through space, whatever it is that we are aware of. Because physical sensations are the most obvious, the most tangible, the, the grossest, if you will. Uh, they have a location, they have a certain quality, they have a certain duration in time, and so they're very distinct but less obvious objects are also known, like thoughts in the mind. So when we have thoughts in the mind, well, we're not sure where those thoughts appear. There's, sometimes they seem to be in our head, sometimes they seem to be elsewhere in our body, sometimes they don't seem to be in the body, they just appear. And so, and did you ever have half a thought? Never have half a thought. Every thought appears in the mind, full-blown, fully there, all the words to that thought are complete, 
in and of themselves. We never get halfway through a thought. It's always complete. So it is more elusive, it's a little more subtle, it's hard to place it in location or time or duration. How long does it take to have a thought? We can have thoughts just like that. So thoughts are a little more, they're pretty obvious. I'm sure you notice lots of thoughts today but they're subtler than sensations in the body. But even more subtle than thoughts are uh, mental states. Sometimes the mental states, some are, some are very obvious, like anxiety, fear, desire. But some are subtle, like contentment, a sense of ease, a sense of okayness, or a simmering sense of anticipation. These are mental states that we all know, we've all experienced, we've all had plenty of them, and yet when we try to identify them as they appear, they're very elusive, very subtle, very slippery, hard to really say where they occur, when they occur, but somehow we can know them. So the mind, as Alexis was mentioning, is very subtle. Awareness is very subtle, very light. And so we want to be... Uh, we want to recognize just how light awareness is so that we can notice the subtlety of what is going on. Rather than just staying with physical sensations, which are, which are good, they're a good tangible object, we also want to be able to open to and recognize and acknowledge subtler phenomena, thoughts, feelings, moods, assumptions, beliefs, the intention before moving, the intention before speaking. So these are all what are called objects of our meditation. Earlier this morning I was in answering some questions about practice. When I ask you how your practice is going, often you'll talk about the different objects that you experience. And that's, that's good. But you'll notice that I was always asking you to look at or to reflect on, to recognize the quality of mind in relationship to the object. You know, so that an object arises, sensation in the body, and we know, oh, there's, that's, that's hard or soft or aching or twisting or painful. But what is the experience in the mind of that object? I don't like it, I like it, confused by it, bewildered by it, trying to figure it out, trying to explain it, or maybe enjoying it. And we can see the relationship in the mind to the object by the expression on our face. This is where suffering takes place. This is where wisdom takes place. Because the objects will arise due to their own causes and conditions and they're changing all the time. The wisdom is not in the object. Suffering is not in the object. Suffering is in the mind that experiences the object. Wisdom is in the mind that experiences the object. So what we want to cultivate here is recognition of the object, that's mindfulness, but recognition of the mind that's knowing that object, this is wisdom. So we're cultivating here wisdom, 
a mindfulness and the development of wisdom. Clearly you can see that this meditation is the work of the mind. It's not about what posture you sit in. Because no matter what posture you're in, whether you're sitting in a chair, sitting on a cushion, sitting on a bench, whether you're walking, standing, lying down, the mind is there. Meditation is the work of the mind. It's what are you doing with the mind, or what is the mind doing with this experience? And to the extent that we can begin to recognize that or, or sustain the recognition of that, then we develop the mind. Any posture, any pace, you can't walk faster than the mind goes. You can't, uh, you can't, you can't do anything without the mind. So what we're doing here is just learning how to pay attention as we go about the everyday activities of, you know, sitting, walking, eating, sleeping, bathing, going to the toilet, whatever it is you do, just turn your attention to notice the mind that's doing that, or the mind's relationship to what you're doing with the body. And what you do with the body is going to be everything. Again, while we say that meditation is the work of the mind, it's not only mindfulness. The function of mindfulness is to remember. So when I give you the instructions, or when I gave you the instructions this morning, I said mindfulness is remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. Now if, and to the extent that I sit here and say, okay, notice this moment's experience, Notice the next moment's experience. Notice the sensations in your right hand. Okay. Notice the sound of the room. Okay. Notice the temperature of the room. Okay. To the extent that I'm guiding you to attend to or to pay attention to different experience, it's easy. You can do that. You can turn the attention to any of those experiences that I mentioned. What's difficult is when I stop talking for you to remember to notice the present moment. That's what mindfulness, that's the function of mindfulness. The function of mindfulness is to remember to recognize the present moment's experience. And to recognize means to perceive, to, to distinctly know or to recognize, oh, this moment of breathing in is different than this moment of breathing out. And breathing in and out is different than the experience of thinking. And thinking is different than the experience of being uh, angry. And being angry has a different flavor or different experience or is a different experience than feeling joy. So when we say to remember, it's mindfulness. But to recognize is to perceive. So we want to remember, to recognize present moment's experience. This is the activity of mindfulness. Again, we can't command the mind to remember. But if we're interested, if we practice with an attitude of curiosity, interest, um, a willingness, then we can really bring our life into view. But we can't, we can't uh, kind of command our mind to pay attention. As you know, 
it, it, it has its own agenda. It wants to think about other things, it wants to do other things, it wants to make plans of things that you'll never do, it wants to remember painful memories that you'd rather forget. <laughs> and so we want to be careful what attitude of mind we're practicing with. So in the course of our instructions, we try to imbue the instructions with the kind of care and the kind of intention and the kind of attitudes of mind that support remembering to recognize present moment's experience. For example, to uh, open our attention, to receive the present moment's experience, to allow it to be felt, to feel into it, to be willing to experience it, to be patient with whatever is, is happening, to sometimes learn to tolerate. So these are all attitudes of mind that we can see support remembering to recognize the present moment. Being open, receptive, willing, allowing, recognizing, patient, tolerant. These are the qualities of mind that you want to look for or cultivate in whatever effort you're making to remember to recognize. Meditation is really learning to observe with interest in order to understand or in order to gather the information about the present moment so that we can understand it correctly. The Buddha said, those who have wisdom have asked a lot of questions. So if you want to cultivate, if you want to grow in wisdom, meaning grow in understanding the way things really are, the way things have come to be, why they've come to be that way, we ask questions. We don't ask questions primarily of the teacher or anything that we can find in a book, but rather we ask the questions of ourself. What's going on? What am I aware of? How is this experience for me? What happens when I experience this? What is it like? What does it do to the mind? What does it do to the body? How long does it last? What qualities does it evoke in the heart? So when we ask those kind of questions, not so much that we need to get an answer, but we learn how to pay attention with interest. So asking the questions of just, what, what is this? What is this experience? What's going on in my life? How is it for me right now? It's not so much that we're looking to get an answer, but it encourages the right attitude of mind to be present, to be aware, and to begin to understand. Because it is understanding things correctly that is going to lead to the end of suffering. Mark Epstein, a colleague and a commentator on the Buddha's path, he said, or he has written, 
As the Buddhist view has consistently demonstrated, it is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether a given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. To work something through means to change one's view, to change one's understanding. But if we instead just try to change our emotional reaction to something, we may achieve some short-term success, but we still remain bound by attachment and aversion to the feelings with which we're trying to be free of. So to put that in plain English, you know, when we have an experience, sometimes we don't like it. Sometimes it's a painful experience. It can be painful physically. It can be painful emotionally. If we just try to get rid of that painful feeling, we can cultivate a, 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 an antidote. You know, if you're feeling aversion towards something, we can cultivate loving kindness or acceptance. Or as I mentioned, if we're feeling... Uh, blaming someone for our experience, we can cultivate forgiveness and we can get some temporary relief. But even if we do that, we still have the source of that blaming within our own heart. We still have the source of that aversion or that fear or that desire or that depression within our mind. We haven't understood it. So to work something through means to pay attention to carefully be with experience, to see how this arises, how we get caught, how we get entangled, the stories we tell ourselves to justify being angry or being fearful or being caught in desire. These don't happen accidentally. They happen due to a very elaborate construction in the mind, in the heart. And if we pay attention to them, we can begin to see how we ensnare ourselves in suffering. While we could just get rid of it, we just, you know, just distract ourselves with something else, apply an antidote. We can get rid of it. We can get some momentary or temporary relief, but we don't develop understanding. What we're doing with Vipassana practice is being willing, cultivating the willingness to stay with, to feel into, to bear with experience so that we can see it unfold, how it is that it came into being, what it is we believe about this, what assumptions are we kind of holding about this experience. Because it's in this understanding, in, in, in seeing the construction of how we suffer, that we begin to free ourselves from that suffering. Vipassana practice is to understand the nature of suffering. And for that we have to move into it. We have to be willing and have the courage to move into the painful places in our body, the painful experiences in our heart. And so for that we need interest. We need this understanding that it's okay to, to, to go into, to get close to, to feel our way into painful emotional experiences. Not just to suffer, but to, in order to understand them. Because it's through understanding that we're going to free ourselves from this habit of mind.
all of these suffering states of mind, anxiety, fear, depression, etc., they arise because of careless attention. We're not paying careful enough attention to our experience. And mindfulness is learning how to pay careful attention, pay wise attention, to be willing to. And so we need this understanding. We need this right view uh, that the Buddha talked about. Because normally, when we feel anxious or fearful or depressed or you know, jealous or envious or, or just raging desire or rageful, whatever it is, we, we just try to get rid of it. We just want to get rid of that experience so that we're not suffering. And while we can get that temporary relief, we still have the seeds of that reactive response deep in the mind. So I want to encourage you to, as you practice and you come upon these states of mind that are really unpleasant, not not to use it as a judgment of yourself, not to even judge your practice for it. These things are bound to arise. The, the seeds of them are in the mind already. But to be willing to, as, as you have the energy, as you have the interest, to be willing to feel into it. Because in this way we begin to understand. But if we don't hear the Buddhist teachings that this is a skillful technique, this is a skillful way of working with suffering, we'll just try to avoid it. And to avoid our suffering like that, or just to minimize it, or to deny it, or to end-run it, or to replace it with some other distraction, only strengthens them, those habits of mind. They, they get stronger if we avoid them, or deny them, or dismiss them. So it's through mindful, mindful, willing mindfulness, and this kind of interest to understand Vipassana practice, that we're going to see into how we create, how we get ensnared in our suffering. As we do this, as we cultivate mindfulness, and as we uh, learn the nature of suffering, then we begin to see our world through Dharma eyes, through the eyes of the truth, the way things really are. And it is through seeing our experience through Dharma eyes that we free ourselves from suffering. This is why we practice, ultimately. We practice for a lot of reasons, but ultimately it's to see things clearly, to to see them clearly with mindfulness, but to understand them correctly through insight. This is learning to see our life through Dharma eyes. Sad Artesani again says, Vipassana, or insight practice, always steps back to see things more clearly, whereas samatha, or concentration practice, dives in and gets absorbed in the object. I was talking about that this morning. If we dive into the object, we can get absorbed and lose our awareness. Vipassana always steps back to take in a bigger picture of what's going on. Stepping back, Sayadaw Tejaniya says, and watching allows understanding to arise. 
Vipassana always steps back to see things more clearly, whereas concentration dives in and gets absorbed in the object. Stepping back and watching allows understanding to arise. And it is this understanding which frees the heart from these habits of mind. So let's sit for a moment and let these words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.